We would like to welcome you this morning to Abundant Life Ministries as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings that you've bestowed upon us, Lord. God, in the midst of trials and in the midst of pain and suffering, God, we are reminded that you save. And for a time period, God, we may go through trials, but we are to consider it all joy when we encounter them, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, Lord. And one day there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering. And Lord, we just ask this morning that you be glorified, that you be honored, that you fill me with the Spirit of God, that I might speak your truth with boldness and accuracy, Lord. And I ask for these things in your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been working through a new series. I've been working through the book of Galatians, but I've stepped away for a few weeks. Maybe for the next 14 weeks, we're going to be preaching through a series called The Seven Seas of History. And if you remember, last week, we looked at this chart right here that gives us the outline of the seven seas of history. If that will turn, there you go. All right, so there's the seven seas of history, and this is put out by Answers in Genesis, and so this is where I got the idea from. And so it begins with creation, it goes to corruption, to catastrophe, to confusion, the Tower of Babel, Christ, cross, and consummation. And we're going to be going through those things for a period of time of probably 14 weeks, and so if you're just joining us, that's what's been going on. And so last week we started... Uh, with the first C, which was creation. And we saw that these three things, that God, He created for a period of time. And we viewed that God in His creation, He spoke about, He showed us, and He confirmed that He created this universe in six literal 24-hour days. And then we saw that God created for a purpose of order. And God had placed us here and placed us humans to be people of order. And so we saw that God uh, gave man the authority to name the animals and to be good stewards of his creation, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and with people and subdue it. And then we saw that God created for a perfect partner. We saw God saw that Adam was not good alone and so he made uh, a woman for man and and here we looked at God's intent to create husband and wife, not Adam and Steve, but Adam and Eve. And He created them to be about His business and about His glory, and that they were to become one flesh, and that they were to procreate. And so, we saw that mother and father were to be left, and that the man was to be joined to his wife. And then we see, it says in verse 24, that the they should become one flesh. It gives us a great picture of Jesus Christ in the church and how secure our salvation is in Jesus Christ. And Today we're going to touch on a different topic. We've seen God's goodness in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and then we come here into chapter 3. Life is good, life is great, they're living it up, they're living in the Garden of Eden, and everything seems to be just perfect. We have a time, we have an order, and in chapters 2 of Genesis, verse 15, Moses tells us that Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden, and here, 
Adam received his wife and they're living in paradise and everything's great. You know, I think about looking at the creation which God's given us and I think about going to the beach and seeing the vastness of that water and maybe sitting out at night looking up into the clouds and even where Jennifer and I served for the last two years in Montana, going out on the back porch and seeing the Rocky Mountains filled with snow and its beauty. And we saw that while that is beautiful, while the beach is beautiful, and while the rivers are awesome, the reality is that they all fall short. The picture of the Garden of Eden and the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God. So this morning, let us take a look at this account as it unfolds. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7. If you don't have your Bible, I encourage you. This book, listen, many are persecuted for their faith. They're not even allowed to have this. And many nations and many countries don't even have the Word of God in their own name, and in their own language. And here we as America... We're filled with Bibles. We have Bibles on our bookshelves. We have Bibles on our, in our cars. We got them on our kitchen table. We got them in our office. But yet, sometimes we fail to bring them to church. And we rely on slides. Now, these slides are for your benefit, but I want to encourage you to bring the Word of God. I believe you'll get more out of the lesson. So let us begin this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit, the trees of the gardens, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God says, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was the delight to the eye, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Just reading that passage brings my heart to tears. Do you realize that every struggle we have comes from this event? From the deception of the devil in which he brought about in that garden. And all of the struggles that you and I deal with daily. All of the struggles you men deal with daily. Come from this event. It should break our heart to see this perfect facility. This perfect garden. This perfect man and woman being deceived by this slimy serpent. This morning I want to begin to unpack this verse. These verses as we look through them. Verse 1, I want to see two things. We see a division in, these, in this first verse. And so I'll divide it between verse 1a and 1b. In the first division, we see the introduction of the father of lies. 
We're introduced to the father of lies. And then the second division, we see the serpent as he casts confusion into man. As we studied the word of God, we, we saw who the serpent was. And we continue to see that in what he is capable of. We see his actions. We read here in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to woman. Who is the serpent? When it speaks of the serpent, I think of a snake. You know, we got our old saying, you're as sneaky as a snake in the grass. But who is the serpent? Who is this crafty beast? Well, Revelation 12, 9 clearly teaches that this, this reptile that, that Moses is speaking about is Satan himself. It says here in Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth. He and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, while the devil here is known as a serpent, and he's made known in Scripture in many other ways as well, he's called what? The accuser. He's called the enemy. He's called the tempter. He's called the evil one. He's called the murderer from beginnings. The father of lies, he's called, is what Jesus calls him in John 8, 44. He says, whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is the prince of this world. And here in verse 1, Satan is called the serpent. And so we have this introduction of the devil within the first portion of this chapter 3. The second part of the verse, we see that this serpent is crafty. He's creating confusion, he's creating doubt in the eyes and in the minds of these perfect beings. Not with statements of declaration, but with devious questions. You know, I think we can learn a lot from how Satan tempted in the garden. He didn't come out and say, God is wrong. God is wrong. No, he, he came with crafty questions. Let me tell you, when, when we're in our daily lives and we're doing our daily things, listen, Satan ain't going to just come in there wide open. He's going to come in with crafty questions. Maybe this morning, ladies, as you looked in the mirror, maybe you, Satan just threw a little thing in there. Maybe you don't look as good as you used to. Listen, that's, this morning, that's how God begins to craft doubt into your mind, discontent into your mind. Maybe this week, guys, maybe you're, you're, you're not getting what you deserve at home. Because us men, we all deserve perfection, you know what I mean? When we know in reality, that's not a promise of the Bible. But in our discontent, maybe, maybe the devil crafted it, sneaky little thing. Oh, just take one look. It won't hurt. Watch that little bit of thing on TV. Oh, it's not going to harm anything. You know, I was flying, and I can't remember where I was flying. As a matter of fact, we were coming back from vacation. And there was a man with his wife and a daughter sitting in the plane. And my wife knocks on my shoulder and says, do not look to your left. You know what I did? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we do it, right, guys? Don't look to your left. Well, when I looked to the left, I was shocked 
this guy is sitting beside his seven to eight-year-old daughter, his wife, and he's opening up a magazine of pornography. On an airplane. You see, what's happened is Satan has crafted in his mind that that's okay. That won't affect that little girl. That doesn't affect his wife. Let me tell you what. His wife is damaged because of that. But that's how Satan is. He's crafty. That accuser, that enemy, that that tempter. The reality is, is he doesn't make a statement or declaration, but he does it with devious questions. Maybe you have experienced that. As we see here, he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you see the question, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? We have a first-hand view of Satan in his great deception. As he brings about the twisting of God's word to cast doubt. And if I were to ask you the same question in our society today, maybe it would be, uh, are you sure God wants you to marry that woman before you have relations with her? Are, are you certain That's what he meant. Surely it's okay for you to do that. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy because it's all about us. It's okay to fudge on your taxes. I mean, I give a lot to the church. I help the needy. I give to the... It's okay just to fudge a little bit. Did God really say that He's the only way to salvation? Are you telling me Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are not going to enter into the kingdom of God? Are you telling me Jesus Christ is the only way? Come on. All roads lead to the same God. Have you ever heard that? Listen, the devil's crafty. Hear me this morning. There is a great lesson from us to learn in this passage today as we see Satan here at work in the garden. We see clearly his way of deception. And we now have knowledge in the way in which he works. Listen, I'm not a military guy. I've never been in a battle. But I can bet that it would be very helpful to know the enemy's strategy. I mean, if I knew a bomb was coming to this building today because I found out this strategy, we wouldn't be in this building today. Well, see, what we see is we see a strategy. And so we can begin to prepare for this strategy. And let me tell you what, we forget about this strategy very often. As clear as it is, we're all guilty of forgetting the strategies in which Come about. Listen, I've been coaching football for the last several weeks with my son. And we get beat pretty bad every week. But I tell you what. If I could get a look into that playbook, we might gain a little ground on them. You see, that's the same thing we need to look at when we read chapter 3 of Genesis. We need to gain some ground on the accuser, on the enemy. We learn best 
from failures. Would you not agree? I mean, listen, I'm a young man. Some of you are older and wiser. How many agree this morning you learn best from your own failures? Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you ain't failed enough yet. We really learn well from our failures, but what can we learn also from others' failures? You know, as a pastor, young pastor, sometimes I meet with other pastors who are more experienced. You know, the first thing I ask them, what did you do that you shouldn't have done? So I make sure I don't do the same thing. Because I want to learn from his failures. I want to learn from his mistakes. And we should be desiring to learn from the mistakes found in Scripture. Now I find it very interesting that the serpent approached the woman. As I read and ask myself the question about the text, I realize the reason he approached the woman... Have you ever considered the logic behind approaching the woman? Now, some women are going to go, oh, here we go. He's going to attack women again because they failed. No, listen. Again, the serpent is crafty. Why did he go after the woman? Well, if we simply take a look back into chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we have the account of God giving the order and the command of the garden. What's it say right there? It says, the Lord God commanded the man. That should, that should perk up our ears. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From the tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat you will surely die. Here we have God speaking to who? Adam. Man. The leader, the head honcho, the chief. A woman has not even yet come in the picture. And so she herself didn't hear the command of God directly. So why would he approach the woman instead of the man? You ever played that game where I tell you something, you tell the next person, the next thing you know you get to the end of the line and it's completely contrary. If there was four people in this picture, I believe he would have talked to the very last person that came into existence. Because that story, that instruction, that command may have been distorted between the deliverance. Well, you see, woman's not created until verse 22. And so when the serpent approached woman, he thought it out well. He had, she had not heard it directly. But Adam was the leader. And it seems, yes, that he had told her Would you not agree the commands of God? Being that she knew the commands of God because of her response in verse 2. Right here in verse 3 it says this. The woman said to the serpent from the tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. You see, God spoke to Adam, and Adam spoke to Eve. This is the way God communicated to these people in these days. They walked with Him, they talked with Him. This was their way of communication. But I want to ask you this morning, how is it that God communicates with us? 
through His Word, through this book. He's given everything that we need pertaining to life and to godliness. And all we have to do is open and read it and allow God to begin to speak to our hearts and to show us what it is He wants to teach us. This revelation that God has given to us is the fashion in which He convicts our hearts and speaks to us through His divine inspired Word. The point I'm trying to make is this. God speaks to us through His Word. And if you are getting the Word through someone else and not yourself from first-hand knowledge, how do you know that person's telling you the truth? I mean, we talked about that in Sunday school this morning. How do we know that these books like the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the, the New World Translation or the Watchtowers, how do we know that these are false or truth? We have to know what the Word of God says so that we can match it up against it and make a determination whether they're false prophets or not. And when we begin to study the Word of God and He begins to convict our heart and He begins to show us the truth, we don't have to read those things. We can just read the truth and know it doesn't match up. But if you get the words of God from someone else, you'll fall short until you get it firsthand. But if you get the words of God from His Word, and you are pouring into it, you're studying it, you're living on it, you're feeding on it, you're living by it, then it's much harder to convince or distort what God has said because you have seen it with your own eyes and you've hid it in your heart. You've spoke it with your own lips. And listen, God's Word will change your heart. And you will be able to stand firm on what God has said in His Word and the truths that come from it. And when someone comes along and gives you something different than what God has said, you'll be able to say, No, sir. Jack, that's wrong. That is wrong. That's not what God's Word said. God said this. Isn't that what Jesus did in the wilderness? Do, do, this, 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 well, listen, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. See, God, Christ, stood up and defended Satan off with the Word. Eve didn't have the first-hand command from God, and it shows because she herself twisted the words. Listen, husbands, we as husbands have been instructed by God to lead our wives. That is an instruction for men. So that they can understand the Word of God. Now, women, that means you need to let your men lead. Well, you know, I don't know I'm not really sure about that. He's just a big old dummy. Well, you know, I was driving down the road the other day, and I heard a wonderful illustration by Tony Evans. And he used this analogy... Listen, ladies, if, you're, if your man's not a wise man, 
If you're smarter than he is, if you're more powerful than he is, if you make more money than he is, than he does, I want you to try to understand this illustration. Let's just say, ladies, we're going to call you a semi-truck. Okay? Because you are tough, strong, and you're on a roll. And you're cruising down I-95. Exit 8's coming up. And you pass on by exit 8, and then here comes your man, a little mini Cooper. Okay? And that mini Cooper's, he's riding, buddy. He's hammered down. And here you come, honk, honk. I'm coming through. I'm coming through. And that mini Cooper's in that right lane, and he's about to veer on 95. Let me tell you what, I don't care how big you are. I don't care how much power you got. I don't care how much money you make. Listen, he's got the right of way. And you got to get over. You see, this is what we miss in our culture. Men are to lead their wives and their family. And the ladies are to let them accomplish what it is that they're called to do. Now, ladies, maybe your man's not leading you this morning. Shame on him. And you know what? Shame on me in the past when I didn't lead my wife. But when I read in Scripture in 1 Peter, it tells me that uh, ladies are to be submissive, like masters are to be submissive to their, to their uh, slaves are to be submissive to their masters, and just like we are to be submissive to the authorities placed over us, like the government during a shutdown. But, there's hope, ladies. Because here in, let me flip to it. Here in 1 Peter, it tells us that because of your faithfulness, because of your ability to follow the commands of God, there's hope for your husband. Even this morning, if you're here this morning, and all you want your husband to do is take time to sit down with you and pray with you. There's hope for you. If I can find this little bitty book in here. Hey, there we go. So, says here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, In the same way, wives be submissive. In the same way as what? As in the same ways slaves are submissive to their masters. In the same way as we are called to submit to the authorities placed above us. There's always an exception clause. In the same way as those, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So that... If any of them are disobedient to the Word, when they don't take the time to, to teach you the words of God, when they don't teach, take the time to, to pray with you, they're not following the words of God. Because in Genesis, men are instructed to lead their families. But listen to what it says, women. If any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see, we have this thing going on in our culture that says, I love you if you love me back. That ain't biblical. The Bible says you love your husband 
And husbands, you love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave up his life. Listen, guys. I think we got a harder task than a lady submitting to her husband. And many times the ladies don't submit because we are not loving them like Christ loved the church. That doesn't make it easy for either party that's sitting there feeling neglected. But listen, we're loving our husbands, we're loving our wives because it brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. My wife is a sinner. And I'm going to make her mad. But guess what? She's going to make me mad. And you know what? I need to forgive her. And she needs to forgive me. Because Christ has forgiven me. And how can I, how can I be forgiven lest I forgive? You see, just because you may be more powerful, more intelligent, more able to lead doesn't mean that's your responsibility. You don't have the right of way on the interstate. You need to get over and let your man lead. And if he's not leading, you pray for him. You get on your knees and you pray for him. Men, we have a responsibility to lead our wives, and maybe they're just waiting on you to do it. Now, did Adam do good of leading his wife? No. And with poor leading and Satan working overtime, here we see a recipe for disaster. Listen, Satan will always tell you things that lead you astray. He will say things like, Oh, what's the matter with... Looking at that magazine. It, go ahead. Eat, eat just a little bit too much. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be tempted to go out and eat me plenty of barbecue when we leave out of here. To the point of probably sinning. It's all right, Stuart. You, you, you did good this morning. You're going to do good. Just take it easy for dinner. And just keep piling it in. You see, we talk about Big sins, but yet we forget about the little sins. About our tongue and now we speak to people. And eating and those things that are so prevalent in our day. What's wrong with doing that? Why does God care what you do with your money? You worked hard all week. Oh, don't give your money to the church. You keep that for yourself so that you can buy what you wish and what you need. Listen, there's nothing wrong with buying things, but not at the expense of robbing God. Now listen, that ain't a prompt to get your money this morning. God don't need your money. Matter of fact, God owns all your money. And you know what? I've seen God giveth, and I've seen God taketh away. Go ahead. Leave. God wants you to be happy. Drink one more. It will make you feel better. Listen. I want you to understand this morning. He is the father of lies. And if we are making decisions based off of how we feel. And not based off of the word of God. We're making big mistakes. 
In the face of such lies, we must remember that our God is good. And His ways are the best. And no matter how the devil paints God, He is a good God even in the midst of tragedy. Woman's response to Satan here in verse 2 and 3 says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God says you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Verse 2, she's right. Verse 3, she begins to what? Add to the word of God. God didn't say anything about touching it. Verse 1, I want to draw your attention to the fact that she should have never even entertained Satan in the first place. She should have never even opened up the door of conversation with the enemy. But she opened that door like so many of us do in our daily lives. We open up the door to where we know failure lurks. And she opens the door and the serpent plants a seed of doubt. And when a seed is planted, listen, it's just a matter of time before things start sprouting. Has God said? Well, we know that is not what God said. We have the teaching of Scripture before us. But for her, we see in addition to the teaching in verse 3 about the touching, about her rules that was given to them in the garden. And maybe it comes from a misunderstanding of what her husband has informed her about the rules of the garden. Satan twisted what God had said, and he takes one restriction that God intended for good and makes God out to be bad. And now we have Eve in conversation with the enemy, adding, neither shall we eat or touch. Oh, that's good. It must be a better way of showing the devil, not only should we not eat it, should we not touch it. You see what she's doing? I could only imagine maybe she's trying to to stand up for God a little more than what she should have. We shouldn't eat from it. Matter of fact, we shouldn't even touch it. That's not what God said. She had great intentions. But I think right here, Eve starts to give away. And when... We are put under pressure. We might say things that we normally wouldn't for the sake of defending ourselves. And here, she could have been trying to defend God. And really, she didn't have to. Because God didn't call her to defend His words. We need no help but God's Word alone. We need no defense but God's Word alone. Because they are from the Almighty Creator. We don't need to add to the Word of God for God's sake. It's reliable with our, without our help. And we need to simply speak that truth. And so, woman answers back to Satan and the serpent, and he goes in for the kill. Verse 4 says, The serpent said to woman, You surely will not die. Here we have Satan speaking against God's word directly. 
Satan's calling God a liar. He's calling him untruthful. And God says the day you will eat, you will surely die. Many times we twist God's word to make it fit our lives. To fit our plans, to fit our desires. And when we go out and make the words of the Lord something other than what He intended, we call God a liar. And that's what Satan did. And we do the same thing when we twist the Scriptures to make it fit our lifestyle. When we twist it to make it fit our theology. We do the very same thing Satan does on his own. And we call God a liar. Surely, you surely will not die. The devil said to Eve in verse, chapter 3, verse 4. The devil wants us to know that sin is not that big of a deal. Okay, God said don't eat from the tree. But really, do you think he's going to kill you over this? You see the craftiness in that? Do you really think you're going to die? Oh, go ahead and eat. He'll forgive you. You fill in the blank this morning for yourself. Do it. You won't die. What is that slimy serpent leading you to think is okay today? I I can think about three things this week that I probably failed in. And I prepared this message. We should be broken. Over how much we twist things to make things fit our ways. Don't believe him this morning. The devil is a liar and there's no truth in him. And he will come to kill, steal, and destroy. Listen, God hates sin. He's always hated sin. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. And he hates whoever else sins. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's something we earn. When you go to work this week and you put in 50 hours, you're going to earn a wage. Well, when you sin this week, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Though you may be a born again believer, you may be saved. Listen, you're killing yourself by sinning. I'm killing myself when I sin intentionally, knowingly. Because I want something the way I want it, when I want it, and how I want it. It's death. You earned your sin. That's why it says it's a wage and sin is death. Don't believe the the lie. Whatever it is you are being told, maybe some of you have some, some friends that are direct workers for Satan himself. They lead you to the way of the serpent. They tell you, God wants you to be happy. Oh, it's okay. You deserve it. Go ahead and do it. It's owed to you. Take it. Do that with that person. It's all right. You just, you know, it's okay. God will forgive you. Follow not man's teaching this morning, but open the word of God and begin to follow the teachings of God's word. For he is our strength and he is our salvation. He is our fortress and he can never be shaken. And I tell you today, choose today whom you will serve. The father of lies or the father of truth. In verse 5, we see the lie continues and the deception grows quickly. Here in verse 5, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to ask you this question. Is this a lie? 
Is that statement a lie? For God knows that in the day you will eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that a lie? Is it a truth? Both yes and no. Every good lie has a lot of truth in it. Satan knows how to lie. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. You see that? There's truth in that statement he made. But it's filled with lie. The serpent is very crafty. He knows the truth of God's word better than you or me. But he only gives half-truths, which are really full lies. And he leads with verse 4, you will not die, and then gives a little truth. You see what happens, what the serpent is doing here, he's going, he's saying, go on and eat, you can save yourself, you will be like God. Adam and Eve both will soon find out what it looks like to look evil in the face. Their eyes will be open. They will know they are evil for the first time in their lives. He was convincing Eve that sin would actually enable him freedom. Listen, that is that, that right there, you could preach a whole sermon on that. How many times in our lives do we look at something that's sinful, thinking it's going to bring us to freedom? And yet, we're a slave to that sin. We're not free. Only Christ can set us free, and that's free indeed. He was convincing Eve that sin would bring about her full potential. And he's still telling the same lies today. Go ahead. Separate. You'll be free. It's all right. Go ahead. Take out your frustrations. You'll feel better. Go ahead. Vent your anger towards God. It's therapeutic. They are all lies, and sin never makes us free. Sin will always bind us as slaves. The devil offers Adam and Eve good things, but they're not really good things. He offers them liberation, but they're not liberating. He offers them freedom when it's really bondage. He offers them knowledge when it's really lack of knowledge. He offers them life. But really it's death. And all they get is shame. Then we see in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was good for food because the devil had talked her into it. And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, the woman recognizes three advantages from the forbidden tree. Number one, that the fruit is good. Number two, that the the tree is beautiful. And thirdly, that eating would make her wise. None of these three things should have sold her out to the devil. But it happened so fast. The account moves with rapid pace. The woman saw, she took, 
She ate, he, she gave, and he ate. That's how sin happens. Happens fast. I think it's a great picture of what it looks like when our minds have folded to the instructions of the Lord. We see what we want. We take hold of what we want. We do what we want. And then we try to involve others in the process. Like that man on that plane. He saw what he wanted. He took hold of what he wanted. And then he did what he wanted. And then he involved his wife and his child in the process. It's really a great picture of sin in our lives. Listen, I lived a a sinful pagan life for a long time. And this matches up perfectly to how I lived. Where was man? Where's the leadership that was so needed to keep his mate out of trouble? Every time the word you is used, it's in the plural form. And therefore assumes that they were together. You could say y'all. It's our duty as men to lead our families to the safety of God's Word. He had the instructions. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was back there fiddling with something. Or maybe he was just being a man. A man that was a failure in his leadership. Listen, we need to step up as men. The culture that we live in, the society we live in, comes from a, from a folding of men leading the home. How is our leadership as men in the church? Do you serve every Sunday? Listen, if you come to church on Sunday just to get and never to give, you're missing it. We need you men to lead in the church. How are you doing in leading your families? How are you doing in leading your jobs? Some jobs overtake the family and the church. We've been called to lead our families. And if we, our jobs are taking us over and we're not accomplishing our, job, our purpose, then everything else fails. Our family fails and the church fails. We're reading through Ephesians as a family, and we were working through chapter 1 last night, and we're talking about, I'm telling my kids, you know, pick up this bottle, son. He picks it up and says, how perfectly did that work, son? Well, it worked great, Dad. Now, take one thumb away. Pick it up. I can't do it. Okay? You see, what happens is when the men in the body of Christ are not functioning as the body, then we're losing fingers and legs and toes and the body doesn't function the way it should. But when men are serving and leading in the church and it's functioning properly, it's like a a hand with five fingers that can pick up a drink. It works perfectly. When that body's hurting, it don't function properly. Can it function? Yes. Because I can reach over and I can pick up that. But is that the most efficient way for it to work? No. Perfection. Two hands. I can pick up two drinks. You see, we need leadership in the church and in the home and in the jobs. We need to be a leader to our wives. And yet we see failure here in these verses. 
We see failure to take responsibility to, to be a godly man and a leader that he was designed to be. And this dude was smart. He named all the animals. I mean, you start naming off animals. I may have a hard time picking a dog's name. Much less name all the animals that existed. Adam failed to leave, lead and they were duped. They had been tricked. They had been shammed. And now truth will quickly unfold. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open. You ever notice that? I mean, that simple statement. As soon as they sin, their eyes were open. You notice that's how it works in life. When we sin, it's like... So, I mean, as soon as we do it, it's like our eyes are open. We, we see, well, man, I, was, I shouldn't have did that. That's what happened here. Then their eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Immediately, it means their eyes were open, and they saw their wrong. It hit them like a ton of bricks. And just as fast as they had sinned, what did they do? They clothed themselves. Because they saw their, their bodies needed to be covered. And here, you could really preach a message on the first sermon of modesty. Best, man's best attempts failed God's standards. They dressed themselves with fig leaves and made for themselves loincloths because they were afraid and they knew they were unclothed. He says, verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And so verse 21, we see that God was not satisfied with Adam and Eve's attempts to, at modesty. To dress themselves. And so he says in Genesis 3.21. And to Adam also and to his wife. Did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. The Hebrew word here for coat means a robe. They were covered so that, so that they, their bodies were not exposed. Listen, modesty is pleasing in sight of the Lord. And in a culture that's fastly getting away from modesty, we want to reveal everything we have to everybody around us. But I do know that nakedness throughout the body, while I don't know exactly just what modesty is, everybody has their limitations, but I do know this, that nakedness throughout the Bible is almost always associated with sin or symbolically with sin. God cares about how we dress and how or He would have left Adam and Eve the way they were. In this third chapter, it's amazing of all the first things we see. We see the first impersonation. We see the first conversation. We see the first temptation, the first explanation, the first violation, the first realization. Listen, this was a true paradise. A home of perfection. Genesis 1 and 2 are God's design for a perfect paradise. But coming, chapter 3, we see the corruption of man. 
We're giving a description of a place of paradise lost in man and woman as they eat the forbidden fruit. And Adam and Eve lost everything they ever knew all because of rebellion. Adam and Eve lost all their 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 innocence and their dignity and their home and their wonderful, perfect relationship with their Heavenly Father. That's so much what happens to us when we fall into sin. The reason that we are diseased, discontent, disobedient, disappointed, disjointed from God is because each of one of us have inherited the sin nature, the sickness, and the death sentence from Adam for those who are not in Christ. But God, the God I worship, the King that I worship is the King of salvation. He's the King of grace. He's the King of mercy. And even in the midst of corruption, even in the midst of disobedience, we see grace and forgiveness. Has your marriage been broken? Listen, God can forgive you. Have you looked at things that don't bring glory to God? God can forgive you. Have you spoke fault witness of a friend through gossip or backbiting? Listen, God can forgive you. Have you lied to someone lately? Have you lied about your taxes lately? Listen, God can forgive you. Have you cheated? God can forgive you. Have you stolen? God can forgive you. Have you eaten of the forbidden fruit? Listen, God can forgive you because He is a God of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. We've all sinned. And the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. We have sinned and partaked of the forbidden fruit because Genesis 3. God in His great mercy says, Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because when you walk out of these doors, you're going to enter into a world. You're going to enter into a place that's going to devour you and the enemy is going to seek you. And if you don't have Jesus Christ as your pillar to stand on, you're going to fail. And when you fail, you won't have Jesus Christ to lean on. If you leave here today and you don't have Christ and you get in that car and you die, the Bible says you will be eternally separated from Him. We've all sinned and partaken just like in Genesis 3. The Bible calls you to repent this morning of your sin. Admitting that you're a sinner, repenting of that sin... so today do so today for today the Bible says the day of that salvation 